Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast all about the books of Rick Riordan. This time, we continue The Throne of Fire. How you doing today, Jane? I'm I'm doing alright. I've I've spent the last couple of weeks trying to think of like, like an STI joke to make about the Throne of Fire as a concept. I can't just I can't get it to come together in my head. You know, that's probably a good thing, like, all things considered. Yeah, I don't know, just a toilet that someone with a clap has just used, maybe. I think you literally said that already. You said that Did in I? an episode. Fuck. <laughs> you, you, yeah, I, Jane, you said that exact joke already. Ra's senility is, like, leaking out of the book and into me. Yeah, uh, um... Uh... So this is our second go recording this uh, because <laughs> I was using the wrong fucking microphone. In case you couldn't tell. Uh, this time I'm using the right microphone, so it should Hell sound yeah. nice. Let's let's cut the preamble. Jane, I believe you did summaries this week? I did, and uh, I will now definitely read them in this recording in a very natural transition. That's right. Jane, if you're gay, uh, start saying say, say, cha- say the word chapter. Wait, no. Chapter 5. Carter. I learned to really hate dung beetles. We cut back to the night before Sadie left, and learn what Carter was so rattled about at breakfast. A terrible dream in which Horus shows him the decaying state of Ra's boat, and the fact that Apophis is almost out of his prison. Horus asks Carter to reconsider his plan to bring Ra back. It could be the magic bullet that they need to repel Apophis, but he might be so senile that he's not fit to rule anymore. Instead, they could use the remaining time to shore up their existing defences, if Carter throws his weight behind Horus as the god who will take down Apophis. Carter, however, is suspicious of Horus's motives, believing that he may just be trying to cling to his position as pharaoh. Later, after Sadie leaves, Carter is feeding his new griffin on the roof of Brooklyn House. Bast appears, ready to leave on a mission of her own and tells Carter that a friend of hers will arrive the next day to help him and Sadie on their quest, before setting off. Hoping to keep things relatively normal for the trainees, Carter continues teaching as usual, taking Walt, the guy from the first few chapters, Felix, Penguin Boy, and Julian and Elisa, unseen before now, through some combat magic training. The training quickly turns into real danger, however, when a statue of Ra breaks apart to reveal a three-headed snake, one who can apparently transmit its thoughts straight into Carter's head. It threatens to destroy Zia the same way that it destroyed her village if Carter doesn't give it the scroll of Ra. Carter responds by telling his trainees to kill it, which surprisingly they're able to do very quickly. Walt, in particular, is exhibiting a strange new power, which allows him to fire a bolt of grey light at his foes. As the snake dies, Carter realises that he recognises its voice. It spoke to him in the museum at the start of this book and it was also the voice of Face of Horror, the demon who was possessed by Apophis in the Red Pyramid. Chapter 6. Carter. A birdbath almost kills me. Carter consults with Amos about the snake demon. His uncle tells him that even though it managed to get into Brooklyn House, it would have hurt itself so badly getting through the defences that it probably wasn't much of a danger anyway, and was likely just being used to scare him. Amos is also cautious about immediately blaming Apophis for this, 
He points out that snakes often served Ra in mythology, and that its three heads may even indicate the god's three aspects. Carter is still pretty sure it was Apophis, though. He also feels despondent. Sadie has basically gone rogue, Bast has left, and the pressure of everything is getting to him. Amos gives him a pep talk about how much he's accomplished, and mentions that he's hopeful that things might not remain this bleak. He really believes that Dejardin can be talked around to helping them, after speaking with him during his trip to the First Gnome. Although, he caps it off by saying that the other scrolls will be just as difficult to find as the first one, as Ra only wanted those who were worthy to be able to find him. Carter heads up to his room to sulk, and goes to the balcony because Khufu is using his bed to watch basketball. He uses a scrying pool that Walt gave him to try and look for Zia, but it can only show him people and places he's familiar with, so it doesn't work. At that moment, Walt comes to talk with him, so Carter alt-tabs out of his stalking to Sadie's grandparents' apartment. Walt is confused and worried about a lot of stuff, including his weird new grey laser powers. He also acts very shifty when Carter asks him if it's anything to do with what he was talking about with Jazz. Before they can hash it out, however, before they can hash it out, however, they realise that the apartment in the scrying pool is fucked, and that Sadie is in danger. Carter tries to locate his sister in the scrying bowl, but some kind of powerful magic almost burns his face off. He and Walt run to find a portal that can get so they can get to London and help Sadie. Chapter 7. Sadie. A gift from the dog-headed boy. Sadie is in deep shit indeed. Both of her grandparents have been possessed by the gods, since they have the blood of the pharaohs too. Her grandmother is possessed by Nekbet, the vulture god, and her grandfather by Bobby, a giant baboon god. Like Horus, they don't believe that the Ra plan is going to work, and want to test if Sadie is strong enough to pull it off. Sadie flees and runs into her friends, Liz and Emma, outside her flat. They run for it while Barbie gives chase, supported from the air by Nekbet. While running past the graveyard, Anubis appears, dragging Sadie inside. He tells her that he can't interfere directly, but he can tell her where the next piece of the Scroll of Ra is. It's in Vladimir Menshikov's office in the 18th Gnome in St. Petersburg, Russia. Menshikov, for those who don't remember, is the weird ice cream man who's mind-controlling Desjardins. He also gives Sadie a Jerry blade, which is a knife which looks a bit like a straight light razor, which she'll need later for something, and tells her that if she goes by the tube, she'll be harder to track, and that crossing the Thames will weaken the gods. He also cryptically mentions that her quote-unquote driver will be along soon, but refuses to elaborate on what that means. He then gives her a kiss and sends her on her way. Chapter 8, Sadie. Major delays at Waterloo Station. We apologise for the giant baboon. Sadie and her friends make it onto a train and get a brief respite from the chase. While reaching into the duart to get her magical supplies, her friends freak out and demand answers about what's happening. The whole thing is overwhelming, however, and Sadie bursts into tears. Eventually, she manages to tell her friends what's going on, and while they believe her, it also hits Sadie for the first time that she's drifting apart from them, and there's not a lot she can do to stop it. They get out at Waterloo Station, which is big enough for Barbie to really stretch his legs and absolutely ruin the place, as mortals flee, leaving the place empty. He also starts summoning a small baboon army to search while the girls hide, and Sadie tries desperately to think of a plan. She finds a potion in her bag which might be able to give her a burst of magic, but it was also her first crack at brewing one so it may also just kill her. She necks it anyway and uses a word of power, protect. This animates the furniture and statues in the station. In the chaos, Sadie, Liz and Emma get out of the station, only to find the driver that Anubis mentioned, waiting outside with a placard that has Cain written on it. 
He's a scruffy, rude little man, but he understands that they need a bridge to fight gods, so he piles them into a shitty limo, limo and takes them to one. He introduces himself as Bez, the god of dwarves and ugliness, and offers to help Sadie beat the other two gods. He stops on a bridge to prepare for the battle, while Sadie puts her friends to work setting up a protective circle, like the one Zia used last book to battle Sekhmet. Sadie has a standoff with Nekbet and Barbie, who know that she's out of tricks. However, before they can move in and finish her off, Bez exits the limo, now wearing his ugly suit, quote-unquote, which is a pair of speedos and nothing else. His powers are apparently, quote-unquote, ugliness, and he uses them to scare the two gods out of Sadie's grandparents. Bez then tells Sadie that they need to go now if they want to get to the second scroll of Ra from Menchikov. So she says goodbye to her friends and grandparents and climbs into the limo. They set off, meeting Carter and Walt on the way, who had just arrived in the city to help Sadie out. So, what did you think of these chapters? Welcome back, girls and gays, and thems and theys. I like that. I've never heard that one before, but that's good. Uh, there comes a time in every podcaster's life where they have to realize that they fucked up and they have to say, I'm sorry, listeners. I'm so sorry. We're on our knees. Didn't we already and... have to release a solemn JPEG because we got a Pokemon's name wrong or something? I think that's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> this time we're apologizing without without a JPEG, um, just just audially, audially, uh, because uh, last week we said this book was going to suck, and this week we're uh, learning that all of our problems with it were wrong, and it rules actually. Uh, I want it on record that I withheld judgment and said that I'd made the exact same call with Titan's Curse, and I wasn't going to repeat that mistake. Well, that's that's true. Listen, <laughs> listen, you're you have the moral high ground. I do. Yeah, it, it's it's good. It's good is actually what what we've discovered about these four chapters. Uh, I have like one pretty big issue with it, but we can, I don't know. Do you want to start with the issues or like kind of save that for later? I feel like we, we can be relatively nice to begin with and then work cool. our way up to whatever the issue is. Yeah, we can make a compliment sandwich of sorts. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, okay. So I think we're both in agreement that this is like the best sequence of four chapters in the series so far. Definitely. Um, one of the main reasons that this is like it's got the character stuff, it's got the it's got good action, it's got like emotional moments, um, and like I kind of said before, it addresses like a lot of the issues we had last time. Mm. One of those uh, is addressed in like a like a like a cool ass training sequence, I guess. It's it's just like my favorite movie, um, Percy Jackson, The Sea of Monsters. Uh, in, in the opening scene where they're all climbing the weird little tower with uh, lights up by Fallout Boy playing. It's like that, but if that was like cool and inventive and fun and like <laughs> showed off everyone's characters. Okay, so so this is like, Jane already explained it in the summaries, but this is this scene just like has exactly what we wanted with like everyone having unique approaches to this fight uh, that shows off their characters kind of generally like illustrating where carter is at right now too um what do you think of this what do you think of this uh i really like it i i like the um it's specifically pointed out that like the way that carter is teaching is that he just like sets his students a problem and then lets them go at it from any angle they want to and that that's a result of like you know he spent his whole life being homeschooled he's not really used to a regimented school environment so I just I think it's a really nice like attention to detail for his character that that's something that's carried through to this book. 
Right. And you can tell that like, it seems like his teaching style is actually, actually pretty effective because these kids are pretty good at what they're doing. I mean, they kill a giant fucking snake. That's right. Uh, we, we learn there's, Oh, what are their names? Um, there's like, there's one of them who's like, is like into the whole Geb stuff can like work with clay. Uh, one of them is Walt. One of them is the penguin kid. And one of them is like a, um, there's another one. Who's the, who's the fourth uh, one? There's Walt from the first few chapters. Uh, penguin boy is named Felix. Uh-huh. Uh, Alyssa, I believe is the one who can use clay. And I don't remember what Julian's powers are. Oh, Julian. Um, Julian is like taking after Carter a little bit. And so far as he is like, Oh big yeah. On, big on Horace. Uh, so we, we see, we see like Julian just like fucking rushing a guy with some weapons uh, we see Walt actually Walt is kind of the interesting one because we see Walt do something just like totally mysterious and powerful for uh, we don't know why he can shoot gray lasers out of his hand which is a surprise to both the reader and Walt that's right uh, do you have any you have any you have any theories on that because I, I have no I have no clue I I've not same I if I had to gun to my head make a guess I would say that uh, he and Jazz did some kind of weird fucked up magical ritual to get more powerful Ooh. and that's maybe what they were talking about at the start of the book and one of the side effects of that is gray laser powers I think it could be true uh, I was gonna guess like he's like a godling too but that seems I don't know that just doesn't seem interesting yeah, especially because we've already got in these chapters a really like interesting and creative use of the god stuff. Oh, definitely. So, while I am actually interested, more interested in Walt than I was last time, because last time he was kind of just like a blank slate, but this time there are a lot more clues as to like him being just like a normal teenager who has a lot of stuff going on in his life. Uh, we don't really know what any of that stuff is, but like the fact that he is like, hey, I have like personal shit happening right now like and now i have to shoot gray lasers it's a bit more endearing yeah he he seems to be realizing that maybe uh he should have thought harder about running away to a weird ramshackle house in brooklyn with two teenagers who don't know what they're doing yeah that's that's another thing that is really well like uh emphasized in these chapters is that like Amos hasn't been around. It's been two larger children flocking around, like, flocking these children together. Mm -hmm. And for, like, all the ways that's been effective, there are ways in which it really doesn't work. Like, there's the part where Felix is, like, really, like, frightened by, uh, I guess is frightened by the weird snake that presumably Apophis sent. And... Question mark. uh Uh-huh. Maybe it was raw. But... And, like, Carter is scared shitless, too. But he realizes that, like, oh, I have to, like, comfort this kid who is about to break down in tears because he's nine years old. Mm-hmm. Side note about Felix. Um, I, I really love one of the details we get about his magic in this chapter just because I find it extremely funny. Uh-huh. Which is, uh, I had assumed that he was just, like, conjuring the penguins and, like, basically creating them. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, every time that he, like, puts a penguin somewhere in Brooklyn House... Uh, he is like summoning it from the Antarctic. He just teleports the penguins here, and then Carter has to send them back. And there's just like this eternal cycle of the penguins being teleported back and forth forever. He's teleporting them into a fireplace. Usually, it seems like <laughs> he, he filled the fireplace with snow. It's not as fucked up as it sounds from that description, but still. Yeah. <laughs> 
how do you think he would have used because it looks like he usually uses penguins in these lessons how would he have used penguins to destroy this like shabti uh penguin seems like it'd be pretty vicious if it bit you yeah it's like hmm. a mean bird yeah, I mean, a swan can, like, break your arm, so I don't want to imagine what a penguin that's even bigger could do. Mm-hmm. Do you ever hear the thing about, like, if a goose is chasing you, what to do? Uh, kick it? Well, the basic idea is that you're supposed to, like, grab it by the neck and throw it. Uh, that seems like a good way to get bit. <laughs> well, I guess, like, you're you're supposed to, like, grab it by the neck so it's, like, it can't reach you, and then just, like, ch- chunk it as far <laughs> as you can. <laughs> Which is hilarious, uh, but... Oh, uh, speaking of, like, gooses, I guess. Geese. Okay. <laughs> okay, is this what we're doing now? <laughs> we're I, just like, I just like the word geese. Uh, geese is a good word. Um, we meet another big bird uh, in in uh, Carter's dream. Oh, uh, yeah. We, we get Horace again. Hello, Horace. Horace is back. He's doing his thing. He's still kind of an asshole. Yeah. This this is another thing I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, this scene connected with the stuff with Neckbat and Bobby later. Um, last episode, just like again going back on like stuff that we stuff that we said last time. What we really like wanted from the House of Life was an enemy who like ultimately had the same common goal, but like different had like different means and ideals and like they so they there was still like conflict in it for them yeah uh and we found that but like really interestingly to me we found that in the gods themselves yeah horror seems to have like a really shit grip on power like the gods seem to be doing basically whatever they want to right and like well there's that but also it seems like there's a faction building around him who are kind of like against the canes Mm-hmm. Because they're looking to revive Ra, but like a lot of the gods seem to want Horus in power instead. Yeah, there's that. Um, like Horus does make like a genuinely decent argument for like you know maybe if we just quit trying to bring back the guy who's possibly senile and spend our time like building up our defenses now, we'll have a better chance. But I like that um, Carter is able to be suspicious of that. And points out the like, well, it's kind of in your interest for uh, Ra not to come back, because then you get to keep being the Pharaoh. Yeah, like, I like that this character who was ostensibly, like, basically one of the main characters last book hmm. could now become one of, like, like a villain, like a major villain. Yeah, I don't, I, hmm, I don't know if he's, like, directly responsible for, like, like Neckbet and Bobby's thing. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to get to the stage where, like, Horus is an antagonist. But he's definitely, like, causing a lot of problems. I think he's representative of an antagonistic force. Mm. Uh, insofar as, like, it seems like Neckbat and Bobby want Horus to lead. Yeah. And so even if he's not the one sending them out, I enjoy that that, like, that antagonism does still now exist. We're like, um... Horus is pretty positive on the canes, but that doesn't mean like all his, you know, all the gods around him are positive on the canes. Yeah, they, I mean, they've not met the canes. No. Who are these fuckers? The one time they met them was Horus and Isis being like, hey, do you want to combine with us for eternal power? And they're like, no. Uh, so. Yeah. I also like um, th- this scene, like, 
build uh, a little bit of a theme across these chapters for Carter, which is like the idea that he is going to be saddled with increasingly big decisions. Uh huh. Like he has this choice between like supporting Horus or continuing to try and get Ra back. And the um, the snake when it shows up says that he'll have to choose between Zia or saving the world from Apophis. And I like that as we're like as he's maturing and we're moving close to the point where he's going to have to become the pharaoh. We're addressing the fact that that's going to involve him making a lot of tough decisions. Like it's not just taking a ceremonial throne. <laughs> right, and we're not just like. <sighs> Those decisions aren't just being kind of, like, placed away for later. Carter already has, like, a position on them. Carter is like, actually, Horus, I don't trust this. I'm going to go for Ra. Uh, Carter is like, actually, I think I would choose Zia over the entire uh, entirety of existence. Like, these... I, I, I enjoy that we already know where Carter stands on this so that we can we can see whether that holds up or changes later. Yeah, definitely. I think it's more interesting to see how his position evolves depending on what happens than just like have him wavering back and forth and not only that but this whole thing is kind of framed through like carter being compared to his dad mm-hmm. because his dad famously uh made a very big choice uh multiple of them uh and so carter and this kind of plays into uh, a theme that we had from last book which was like carter having to become less like his dad Mm-hmm. Or like rather Carter having to grow into his own individual self. Um, and so I enjoy that that is like still a very important part of Carter's character arc. Yeah, that, that maturity is actually brought across really well in these chapters, I think. Because um, we get, um, he, he like goes up to his room to sulk because he realizes that he can't like, you know, he can't show weakness around any of the trainees or they'll start to panic. And it has this like echo of... Um, the way that he always had to perform around his dad. Uh-huh. And now he's having to do it around these these kids in like in a different way where he's not looking for his dad's approval and he's kind of becoming his own person, but like he's not like he's not done yet, if that makes sense. Like he's still having to pretend uh to a pretty extreme degree around other people. Yeah. The one person he doesn't end up having to uh, pretend around is Amos though. I love Amos in these chapters. Oh, same. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I just I really love the scene where um he sits Carter down and gives him that um pep talk about how like, hey, you've actually accomplished a shitload. Like way more than Dejaden has done controlling the entire house of life. And you should feel proud of yourself for that. And it it feels nice that Carter like f- like feels better for having that conversation with him. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I I I love this scene. I Amos is very much growing on me. He's not mm-hmm. just the sussy baka anymore. <laughs> the the canes are, I would say, not lacking for parental figures. That's true. But you know, two of them are like in the dua in the land of the dead, uh, and one of them is blue. And two of them are like. <laughs> And that's the thing we get with Sadie here, too. Like, not to jump ahead a bit, but, like, Sadie's relationship with her grandparents as basically, like, the ones who raised her, mm-hmm. um, like, essentially, like, her parents, uh, were, is kind of, like, this. that sentimental side is brought out more in these chapters. And so I enjoy that, like, 
Amos gets his own opportunity to shine with, like, letting Carter understand that he has this, like, support network of adults, I guess. Or mm-hmm. at least, like, he he's able to lean on one adult. And I think that's important for, for like, kids, I guess. Yeah. I, speaking of, like, parental figures, it's also a really nice moment when um, uh, Bast, uh, like, strip calls Carter her kitten. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really sweet. Which is like that's that's something she mentioned in the last book, but like as Carter points out, um, there wasn't really a moment where it seemed like he was anything more than baggage that was along with Sadie. Yeah. So it's it's really good to have that like have that backfilled a little bit and know that like oh no, Bast also really values Carter, like just as his own person. Right. It's a good moment of clarity, like clarifying that relationship, and I'm I I really like that. Uh, Amos, Amos is just like really good here also because he's like shown to have these, um, we get a bit more information about his like trip to Egypt and also kind of the permanent scars the possession has left on him. I, I love that, um, his magic used to be blue, but post set possession, even though set is gone, his magic is now red. Yeah. Like it's been permanently tainted or something. Like, yeah, it's, even though he's like keeping his cool around Carter, it is this just like very i don't know if i want to say subtle but very like offhand way of showing that like no he's still dealing with this shit this has scarred him right it's a it's a it's not a subtle but it's a it's a pretty straightforward i guess metaphor Mm -hmm. for like the lingering trauma of what he's been through um and i liked i thought it was interesting hearing that he was just like having casual conversations with dejaden while he was in egypt i i have to imagine that as him just like following Dejaden around and bugging him because he thinks it's funny and Dejaden yeah, like... can't kick him out while he's sick. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, quirky Amos. And he has he has that kind of like dry sense of humor. I genuinely feel like that's something he'd do. Oh, definitely. Like we we know from the first few chapters of this that you cannot turn away like someone mm-hmm. who wants to be taken in and healed from like the house of life. Uh, which is, I don't think we talked about that, but like, I, I like knowing that the element is there. Yeah. Uh, some, some nice world building, I guess. Uh, so Amos taking advantage of that to just be petty is a funny <laughs> idea. Especially because we do know from like the conversation at the dinner table that like Dejaden might have honestly grown on him throughout that time. And I guess it, it does also retrospectively confuse me a little bit about why he... About the Sadie Dream stuff from last episode, I guess. Oh, how so? I don't know. I feel like if he's been chatting to Dejardin and feels like he's been really softening, I just wonder why there wasn't like a moment of the fuck. When, well, there um, is that moment. I think I think you might be not remembering it, but that's very possible. There, there is a moment where he's like. Well, the only reason Dejanon would do this is because he thinks this. But now, wait a moment. Why would he do this unless? And then he kind of just trails off. Hmm. So I think that's that's where that it's a it's a it's a fertile trailing off, if you will. I see, I see, I understand now. Uh, hmm. Speaking of fertility, oh, <laughs> do we want to talk about Bess? Oh, let's talk about Bess. Uh, uh, I I would like to propose a a, a new. A new principle, a new rule, a new law that we can see if it holds up. A theorem, if you will. Okay. 
uh, I call it the the Rick Riordan problem. Or actually, no, I'm going to call it the Tyson problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, where in every second book of a Rick Riordan series, <laughs> there has to be introduced, oh, like, there has to be at least one character introduced for Rick Riordan to be weirdly ableist about. Yeah. So Bess is like a god who is the the chauffeur chauffeur that's not how you say that word uh the chauffeur for like um the the bast promised them uh bast and Bess also just like too close as names that's not we i have to start saying like bastet now or something i think that's why bast doesn't <laughs> doesn't tell carter his name uh in that rooftop scene because rick didn't want to, have to deal with writing them both at the same time <laughs> Bess, he's like a funky little guy. Uh, he is the he's presented here as uh, the god of dwarfs, pretty much in totality, and also seems to have some domain over fear. Uh, he's presented as ugly, mm-hmm. smelly, rude, just disgusting to look at and be around, uh, messy, uh, and just kind of very unpleasant all around. Yeah, this, I don't know. This just kind of sucks. I'm not entirely certain. Um, who specifically is going to be offended by the fact that he has Dwarf Pride written on his Speedo. I, I can't pin it down specifically, but I feel like it's a lot of people. I, I'm i looking at, like, art of this character, and, like, I don't know. I think it's really interesting when you think about, like, oh, what elements is someone going to draw into art of a character mm-hmm. when they when they hear that it's a character with like the ugliest character imaginable like what what do they what what like all mismatched traits that none of them look good uh what what's someone going to depict as just like super ugly uh <laughs> um art art of best i think is a fascinating case study in this uh, I'm gonna send one piece to you, and you can post this on the Twitter or something, or you can put it in the—I don't know. Oh yeah, that's um, that sure is a face with some coding. Where Bass is presented as having like uh curly hair, like a big hooked nose. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's hairy all around. Um, shaven legs. Uh, those are not shaven. Oh wait, those are not shaved legs. Uh, it's rather the opposite. It looks like he shaved, like, the back of one of his legs, though. I think that's just meant to be the light hitting it. But, yeah, no, I can see where where you got that. I've zoomed in further. You're right. He's very hairy. Uh, This feels like a combination of, like, 20 different stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't like it. Uh, His ass is flat. Uh, (laughs) It's... It's... uh, but, But I guess apart from... I don't know. I don't know what to say about Bess... He's he seems like a cool guy. He he seems like he knows his shit as far as fighting gods goes. If that's something. Right. Come on, Rick, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I here's here's one of my main issues. Alright. And I think this is I think this is a big problem. I, I think this is actually kind of a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um I was I was really interested in looking up best because I was curious about like what is this like god of dwarves like what is or, like like who is this character from egyptian mythology and it turns out he's actually like one of the most important like gods to like the common people in egypt uh in, in ancient egypt interesting uh insofar as like 
Bess was this super popular deity who everyone loved. He was like this protector of good, a god of music, merriment, and fertility, a protector of children. People would have like images of him in their homes. Uh, so he was like Aphrodite for the Egyptians. He fucked, uh, for sure. <laughs> uh, and I just think that, and I didn't find anything about like ugliness or fear. Um, and like specifically the fear thing really is just like a strange element to add to me because it, it just feels like, Oh, this is the, this God, this is the God who is going to be super ugly. And like, he's, we're going to make him wacky and weird and gross. And like, Oh, why'd you do that? Rick? The God of the proles. It's just kind of overbearing. Like, it just feels like so unnecessary to me, I guess. Like I, yeah. what, the, what, the one thing I do like, the one thing I do like is that, um, like he is depicted, like you said, as being like a very competent fighter. Uh, uh, and like, because, and this is something that like matches in a way that I enjoy with like him apparently being super, like he was the guy who fought the demons and shit. And mm-hmm. like it's a lot of Egyptian mythology. Like that was one of it. One of the things, one of the things he did is like a protector of good. Um, and I can see where this is going, right? Like, I think we can both see where this character is going. I can't. I, I, I guess I shouldn't be that vague. What I mean is, like, <laughs> I feel like this is setting up for a moment of, like, actually, this guy rules despite how he looks. Mm-hmm. Or, like, we made assumptions about this guy because of how he looks and acts. But actually, he is very cool and a good person. That would be the least terrible way for this to go. Yeah. But I just think for now, it's over. Like hearing Sadie constantly be like this disgusting creature. It's it's so it's. I just don't like reading it. Yeah, no, it, it sucks. Uh, everything else around Sadie stuff is cool here. Oh, definitely. There's there's something like okay. So I guess we're talking about the Sadie chapters now. So there was something in these chapters that I realized wasn't missing from like all of Red Pyramid until we actually like got these. Uh huh. Uh, but we we didn't have really any urban fantasy in our urban fantasy series last book. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because like, while it was technically taking place in the real world, um, there was like pretty much none of the settings were familiar to either Carter or Sadie, so there wasn't really a lot of interesting interplay between like you know the world that they knew before and the stuff that they were familiar with, and then all the magic shit. Yeah. Like, it, it may as well have just been Magic World. But now yeah. now that we're back in London, we've actually got, like, Sadie having to deal with, like, her friends finding out about this shit. And, like, and her friends mm-hmm. are, like, ride or die. They rule. I, yeah, Liz and Emma are very good friends. <laughs> they, are, they are willing to sit there and wait for Sadie to have a fucking breakdown before she explains what's going on. Uh-huh. One of the things that I, I did kind of annoy me last book was how it seemed like at every opportunity they were like away from people. Like, oh, they got to the museum, but it was at night. Oh, it's mm-hmm. Christmas. Nobody's there. Uh, like, and already we've gotten like, we've got a, like a whole wedding they interacted with here, I guess, kind of. I guess most of uh, Regis' example would be like, it's Paris, but it's deserted. Right. Like, why? Oh, because it was raining, so nobody was out, right? <laughs> Which, okay. But... 
what we've got here is Sadie, and this is kind of like letting Sadie shine in a way that she never has before, mm-hmm. because it's it's Sadie alone, which we've never gotten Sadie alone. We've never really gotten either of these characters alone like this exactly. She's in her own environment. She's with different people, like like no- normal, non-magical people, and she's having to like, I guess, just like survive on her own, and that's creating some of the most compelling like action scenes we've gotten. Previously, she's had Carter around to like. Um beat up the demons for her basically but yeah in in this case we get to see like we get to see like her interacting with, like her weaknesses with magic in interesting ways because it takes her a while to get her shit out of the duo art and it's i don't know it's really interesting to see how like how a non-combat focused magician handles being in this like terrible situation yeah and i like that it's all <laughs> established already like there's no moment here okay well it's not all established already we don't know that she has like a potion she's carrying around Mm -hmm. but what i mean more so is that like we we got a little bit about how like annoying it is to have to like stuff things in the duo and take them back out uh we there are like a lot of tiny little things dotted throughout the first couple of chapters that are already paying off in nice ways Uh like not big setup and payoff things just kind of um it's just like creating a tighter story i guess yeah as opposed to red pyramid where we were moving to a different location every five minutes and having a new set of power was introduced yeah it now that everything is introduced it feels like i don't know having sadie be able to explore this whole like following the goddess of magic what does that mean uh and like getting to see her just like unleash a fucking sephora on a giant baboon Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that's 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 pretty good yeah definitely uh i also really like the like the almost like body horror element that we have with um uh was it bobby and neckbet like possessing her grandparents yeah because that that's also one of those like set up and payoff things where it's like you know that was never explicitly laid out but oh yeah that makes sense they're related to the pharaohs as well so this could happen Oh, definitely. And mm, it's interesting because the first book had, um, I don't know if it's so explicitly said that you need to have the blood of the pharaohs to be possessed by someone. Do you remember that at all? You definitely don't because um, uh, Sekhmet, the scorpion one, possesses a random person while chasing them through uh, Brooklyn early on in the book. But the ones with the blood of the pharaohs make the best hosts and tend to last longer without burning out is, I think, what's going on. Right, right. And yeah, that's that's the that's the instance that I was actually going to bring up. Mm-hmm. And that moment also had a bit of like body horror to it, um, and or just like I don't know if it was body horror necessarily, but there was that moment of horror when they were like, "Oh God, there's just like a human in here in this like nest of scorpions that's yeah. living." And there are like elements here, right? Like it's someone Sadie knows. Oh, it's Sadie's grandparents. Oh, they're basically Sadie's parents. Oh, they're old people who are like being horrifically like transformed and like transmogrified. God, the the bit where the bit where Neckbet says like um like you can't fight me because if I get too excited, well, your grand's heart isn't holding up very well, and it might give out give out. Like that's fucked that's so fucked like <laughs> the the stakes feel like they'd never been higher than here like mm-hmm. even when the entire world was about to end last book well yeah because this is much more like personal to sadie like exactly yeah these two are awesome villains i i i adore like how monstrous and like i guess just like gruesome they are 
Like the description of um, Neckbit's mouth, her teeth is looking like she just had shards of broken glass pushed into her gums. Ah, oh, Jesus! Like, yeah, yeah, that's horrible. And it's even like little details, like oh, like Bobby is this giant, horrific, muscled like baboon, uh, representing like everything that like everything that makes baboons scary, which is that they'll tear your face off. <laughs> But also, he just, like, has her grandpa's glasses on his forehead the entire time. Yeah, it's it's stuff like that that, like, makes sure that you don't forget that, um... Like, at the end of the day, these are people that Sadie cares about being possessed. Like, even if she could go all out against them, like, even if that would be enough, she couldn't. So it really builds that feeling of helplessness. Definitely. And I like... It feels like the gods are becoming something that the Percy Jackson gods never were, which is, like, divided factions. No, you're right. Um, the, the Olympians, like, we get threatened with, like, them dividing into factions and having a civil war and lightning thief. But later on in the series, once it's clear that the Titans are coming back, they pretty much band together to defeat them. So it's, it's interesting yeah. to get that texturing of the god faction. And that's only improving, like, what I said earlier about, like, what I'm enjoying about this, uh these competing different groups uh i one thing that's like super funny to me though um when like they're finally defeated and like sadie's grandparents just like are back to normal and they're just like normal grumpy old british people but like Mm -hmm. they're being grumpy about like egyptian gods (laughs) that's that's some much needed levity oh yeah where like her granddad is just grumbling about bears as if it's like a traffic light that's held him up on his way for work or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I ask you a question? You can. Because I, I don't know this. I'm, I feel like I've heard various things about this. Do British cops have, like, some, like, if, if there was a British cop at a station, would they normally have a gun? A train station? Uh, probably. Okay. Especially depending on, like, whether or not there had been a terrorist attack recently or something. Okay, and there there was that part where it was like, oh, what with all the terrorist threats Mm -hmm. or whatever? Okay, interesting. For some reason, I, 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 obviously this isn't true. I, I, like, I know this. I've, I've, but for some reason I still have the idea of a British cop as, like, swinging a billy club. (laughs) I mean, normally, Beat cops don't carry guns, as I understand it. Okay. Like it's a nightstick and probably a taser. Okay. That, but that does mean the jump is like you're either dealing with PC plod with that, or a dude in a fucking bulletproof vest with an MP5 just Jesus hanging around Christ. in the shopping center staring at you. God. Uh yeah. Uh, fuck cops. The the official possession of unwise girls Absolutely. must be said. Anubis. Anubis is here. Anubis is here to uh, have awkward romances with Sadie. He's he's the smexy. He's smexy. Uh, he's like he's a little bit like Edward. He's a little bit like the Beast. <laughs> um, he's he's a little bit like the uh, Harry Styles or someone. I don't know. This is this is proto Tumblr sexy man. I think. Or actually, when did this come out? This might just be like Rick going for that demographic. I mean, this is what twenty eleven. It's been him going mm-hmm. for this demographic like the entire time. That's true. But even more so here is like, and I guess from the first book as well, Anubis is just like he's a heartthrob. He's he's the emo boy you gotta love. He's he's a bit Sadie's mysterious. Sadie's friends are also like, oh my god, who's that hunk? Yeah. Oh, that's another thing that I do like about um, 
like the stuff with Sadie and her friends is that they are presented as just like normal kids, which oh, I think definitely. Can, which I think can be a problem sometimes with like I don't know. Sometimes men write groups of teenage girls as like weird mad like like weird beings uh who who aren't also just like children. Not to make an absolutely horrifying comparison, but it it, it often falls into the way that fucking J.K. Rowling write about groups of teenage girls in uh-huh. the bad books where they were like mysterious creatures quote unquote who always travel in packs and it's, it's very funny to me that uh, rick ryan is able to write them like a lot better and with a lot more depth yeah i guess it's not just men is it it's also <laughs> <laughs> extremely misogynistic it's... women also <laughs> yeah that's right um rick ryan uh ally of the year i guess um no <laughs> no no. Ally to women required and Fair. I guess. As long as we're not talking about the, the best stuff. Yeah. Or Tyson. Um, or yeah. fuck. Oh, oh, Tyson. Well, maybe like Tyson, Bess will be like our favorite character by the end of this. That's true. We did like Tyson by the end of PJ. Although it's very fucking baffling to me that he managed such a good recovery with Tyson and then made almost the exact same mistake again. Mm-hmm. Right, and the thing is, like, it's important to know that, like, this isn't the exact same mistake. Like, there are, there's, like, nuances to it. I can't, I, I can't get into all of it, but, like, it's obvious how he, like, got here, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I don't like any of it, but I I get it, I guess. I guess it's it's a, the end product of the fuck up is similar, but you can definitely see, like, there, there was a different thinking that went into it. This is just this is just more evidence for our Vlad the Inhaler theory. <laughs> what? You know, like our, our our theory that he's just called that because he has to carry around an inhaler. Oh fuck, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh actually on the topic of Bez, I this isn't like a huge thing, but I find it kind of interesting that he seems to be being presented a lot closer to like how the Olympians were presented in Percy Jackson. Oh yeah. Because typically, uh, so far in the Cain Chronicles, with the exception of maybe Thoth, uh, the Egyptian gods have always seemed quite, quite quite anachronistic, quite stuck in their ways. They tend to like not have adapted to the modern day very well. Whereas Bez seems to have like, like completely updated himself to slightly grotty cab driver in the way that the Olympians had often like completely updated themselves to fit into the modern day. So I don't have anything big to say about that. It's just something I find interesting. No, that's really true. Like even Thoth is like he just figured out yesterday that he's in e- that he's not in Egypt anymore. That's also like, true. Um, but with Bez, like maybe this is part of like I'm sure Rick did some research. Maybe this is part of like the you know hero of the common people thing. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, oh, true. He's, he's up to date with the current times because he's 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 I don't know. He's he's normal. He's normal man. I mean, there is there is no greater hero to the British public than a cabbie that's right uh shout outs well this is also an america he's also uh explicitly described as having an american accent oh, fuck for some you're reason. Right. never mind he's an, he's an american <laughs> cabbie in in london is that is that are there any stereotypes about that i think you get run out of town to be honest <laughs> uh <laughs> you get into the fucking cab and you hear some guy being like that where do you want me to park the car and they're like <laughs> <laughs> They just get out and leave. <laughs> they just get out and leave. <laughs> oh god, okay. Um 
Oh, I think we forgot to talk about Anubis. Uh, he. Oh yeah, we got he, sidetracked. Things are getting heated with uh, their relationship. They they have a little smoochum. I honestly didn't think that they were there yet. <laughs> this this caught me off a bit off guard. You know the awkward the awkward like teen boy like I don't know. You, I guess that's where we're at. Uh, I suppose that's he, true. He does have those like I I'm just like reading this entire thing. I'm like okay, bro. Like I get it. Like, <laughs> I I see where you're what you're doing. Like he is such like a. Sadie's right. He's an annoying teenager. Like the part where he was, where she's like, "Are you not going to help me fight these gods who are trying to kill me?" And he's like, "I told you about Saint Petersburg." And it's like, okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks. That'll be great help if I don't fucking die in this fight. Yeah, but you know, he's he's got the the emo boy haircut or something, so he's he he it's he's cute. Uh, what else? Carter's roommates with a monkey. Yeah, he sure is. I don't quite understand what the deal with that is, but sure. Yeah. Uh, Khufu. Khufu is just like, he's just there. He's in the Khufu's proximity. Khufu's just fighting. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, we get another Percy Jackson shout out here. Oh, yeah. Carter mentions that sometimes when he's on his balcony, he can, he fucking glimpses like flying horses in Manhattan. Uh-huh. So I guess Blackjack is still around and doing his thing. Yeah, an interesting thing that we should probably point out, um, I don't know how much listeners care about this, but I think by the time we get into this book, let me do some like quick research. Uh, I like that this bit continues the like Greek gods as shitty neighbors theme from last book, where it's just like they cannot keep their shit together enough to keep out of notice, and like even the people who are devoted to other pantheons have realized this. Oh, for sure. Um, so actually, even by last book, the last book actually took place after the first uh, Heroes of Olympus book. Oh, interesting. So that's uh, why the Williamsburg Bridge had not been fucking nuked by Percy in that one. Uh-huh. Um, and this one takes place not not too far after that one, um, but, be- but before the next Heroes of Olympus book. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this this actually is a pretty short timeline for what we're because kind of typical in these required in books like it's not like a year it's just like a couple of months. Yeah, you definitely don't get. Yeah, it's not been like that long since Red Pyramid. Yeah, I'm I'm eyeing I'm eyeing the Serpent's Shadows placement in this in this list because it's it's interesting to me. Oh. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll get there when we get there. All right. But but you know, uh, I think that might be it for us today. Oh, one last thing. Okay. Uh, the weird snake god that's talking, well, the snake thing that's talking in Carter's head. Apparently is what uh, destroyed Zia's village. Oh, yeah, that's interesting, actually. Yeah, I didn't think that we were going to get any, like, elaboration on that. But it seems like maybe it's somewhat related to, like, Apophis's shit now. Right, which makes me wonder, because it's almost... Not implied, but the question is brought up. Like, Ra could have brought this thing here. Oh, yeah, if Ra had something to do with it instead of Apophis, that could be really interesting. Especially because the uh, Amos also says here, like, what are you going to do if you wake up a god who doesn't want to be woken up? Like, maybe Ra is like... Okay, I guess we're in, we're in theory corner now. What if Ra is, like, actively trying to sabotage their wake-up Ra mission? I think that that might be the case. Just because, like, the the last book was about, you know, breaking away from um, 
breaking away from these like horrible cycles of history and like growing up and becoming your own person. So if the magic bullet to defeat the main threat is to just like go running to the big old god and ask him for help, uh, that'd be kind of weird. So I suspect that something else is in the works and it's not going to work out like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, well, I'm definitely excited. Yeah, definitely. This, these two chapters were definitely a step up from last week. Yeah, all, all things considered, I'm, I don't know. These somehow single-handedly made me like very positive on like the direction going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hope it keeps up. Hell yeah. Uh, but I think that that ends it for us today. So if you'd like to reach the show, you can check us out on Twitter at on wise girls there. We've got all our links to our discord server, our Patreon, our own personal Twitters, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to support us, you can leave a five-star rating, a review. You can tell a friend. That really helps. Uh, you, can, you can do a lot of things to help. Uh, one of which is going to our Patreon, patreon.com slash unwisegirls. Uh, for $1 a month, you get the special Discord role of Whittledobeying. Uh, for $3 a month, you get the special Discord role of Big Ba Energy. Uh, and also access to all of our bonus content. Yep, last episode, uh, we uh, talked about Homestuck... Uh, I failed to explain why The Expanse is good. Uh, and we also, um, on air, played a game of Wordle. And uh, the feedback we've gotten on that has been really good so far. Um, here's a testimonial from uh, one of our valued patrons, Erica. Uh, Listening to Jane struggle to figure out the word solar might be the most frustrating thing in this bonus show's entire run. So if you want to get in on that, uh, sign up to our Patreon today. Yeah, we're also thinking of uh, doing some, like... I don't know. We're thinking about doing like the Prince of Egypt, maybe mm-hmm. gods of Egypt, maybe <laughs> v- various, various Egypt related things. If it's got Egypt in the title, we have to watch it. That's right. I think that was originally the concept for our bonus show. We were like, we'll, we'll watch related media. Uh, and we did like an episode on Hercules and stopped doing that. We did an episode on Hercules and then we just talked about Homestuck for 40 episodes. It's fine. It's fun. <laughs> It is. Uh, oh, fuck. Wait, I know what we should do. What is it? Uh, I should uh, force you to watch more Doctor Who because it's related to this. Uh, we should watch the episode Mummy on the Orient Express. Ooh, is that uh, the 12th Doctor one? Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, maybe we'll be doing that. Uh, and for $5 a month, you can get the role. Uh, well, and for $5 a month, you can get the special Discord permission of uh, uh, the Bast Headpat Pass. And by Discord permission, I mean Discord role. But uh, metaphorically, you get the one Bast Headpat Pass. She's away from Brooklyn House at the minute, so you can't use it, but uh, store them up. That's right. Uh, they, I mean, they they are only usable once a month. But you know, <laughs> if you can find her, I guess. Listen, we give you the pass. We don't tell you where to use it. That's right. Uh, this one gives you all Verona's content as well. And also with a special thank you at the end of episodes. Speaking of which, uh, this week we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And, as we always say, at the end of every single episode... See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye-bye. Bye. Mm-hmm.